Hello, welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. My name is Stephen Ide. I'm a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor to City Journal. Today, we're going to be talking about the Doe Fund, a New York City-based social service agency. The Doe Fund works at the intersection of some of the most you know, really pressing challenges that we face today, homelessness, prisoner reentry, workforce development. And just to kind of frame why the Doe Fund is so important, one of the things that I've always thought makes New York City an interesting place is that you often come across really creative and talented people who probably could have succeeded in any field, Wall Street, entertainment, but instead decided to devote their talents to starting a social program, a school, or some program working with disadvantaged populations. Famous examples there would be places like the Harlem Children's Zone, Success Academy. The Doe Fund is really in that same rank. For more than three decades, the Doe Fund has served over 30,000 individuals dealing with problems such as reentry and homelessness. And it really stands out in its promotion of work, not just as something that's economically necessary, you know, because people need money, but more importantly, because work is part of a full human life. To go into all that, I have two of those creative and talented individuals, Harriet Carr McDonald and Jennifer Mitchell. Harriet Carr McDonald is the president emeritus of the Doe Fund. Along with her late husband, George McDonald, Harriet helped start the organization over 30 years ago and lead it from its earliest years when it was providing paid work to only about 70 men experiencing homelessness to the major multi-service organization that it now is. Jennifer Mitchell is the current president and CEO of the Doe Fund. She's now in her actual her second stint at the Doe Fund. She worked there earlier in her career. She took the helm earlier this year, and she has an extensive background in workforce development. So Harriet and Jennifer, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We're so glad to be here. So Harriet, I want to begin with you and ask you, how did it all start? And I want you to you know, set the scene for us way back in the 1980s, Grand Central Terminal, and weave together the life stories of a few individuals, both you, your late husband, George, and also I think a woman named April, who you were close to, and another woman named Mama Doe, the namesake of the organization. Ready, Willing, and Able and the Doe Fund really started George McDonald, my late husband, started feeding people in Grand Central. And he said he got tired. He was a successful businessman. And he got tired of walking out of expensive lunches and having to step over homeless people. He, in his feeding the people, began to feed a woman named Mama Doe. She didn't have any other name, I mean, that anyone knew. She was a European immigrant, and he fed her. And then in the cold of winter, Grand Central put the people out on the street. She got pneumonia, and George found her on Christmas morning, dead on a bench in Grand Central. I was a Hollywood actress and screenwriter, and I was hired to write a screenplay about April Cezino a young girl that was homeless and living in Grand Central. I spent a week with her in the terminal all the time. She was actually smoking crack at that time. And I decided she was extraordinary, very smart. I decided I would adopt her and take her back to Beverly Hills and raise her with my daughter. By then, all of the people I knew in the terminal, because after a week, you know a lot, were so invested in her going to live in, of course, Beverly Hills. But the last day she hid from me when we were supposed to fly back, 
And we looked everywhere, including over the lower traps underground where she had built a nest that she lived in. We couldn't find her. I thought, I'll go back to Hollywood. I'll write this screenplay. And that will save not only her, but many other homeless people. Right after I finished the first draft, I got a call that she'd killed herself on the steps of St. Agnes's Church. I was devastated. I came to her funeral, and this, who I thought was a priest, gave this incredibly moving eulogy, how she was a star in the night sky. Afterwards, he invited me for a drink. I realized he was a homeless advocate. And we really, from the first day, decided to do this work together. And very shortly thereafter, I left Hollywood to marry a penniless man living in an SR and start this one. Let me interrupt you for just a second, Harriet, to get clear in one detail. This phrase, ready, willing, and able. Yes. Where did this phrase come from and what does it mean? Okay, to me and George, it meant the people were ready to work with help, obviously. They were willing to work hard and they were able to do it. And that's how we started. Why was it that, so it centers around this issue of work. And, yeah. you know, uh, obviously at that time, as you noted, there were drugs in the picture. Oh, you know, There was al always housing. Why was the value from the very beginning, as I understand it, centered around work? Well, first of all, George and I were patriots. We believed in the American way from day one. And the American way has always been for people to be upwardly mobile, to work hard to get there, to get a better life, to raise their children. That's always what America has been based on. just want to interject for a Please. second here. Hi, Stephen. I'm glad to be here with both of you. One of the things that has always struck me kind of about the origin story is when George was handing out sandwiches and when George and Harriet were getting to know everybody, what they kept saying is, thank you for the sandwich, but what I would really like is a room and a job to pay for it. Nobody from back in the mid-80s until today is looking for a handout. People are looking for opportunity. People are looking to build themselves up. So we've always said it's a hand up and not a handout. Exactly. Uh, and people have responded to that. And that's kind of the core of the program. We started with me as the first program director and the only staff member in Bed-Stuy with the 70 men we picked up off the floor of Grand Central. The first work we did was for the city, the non-union work to renovate city-owned apartments. And our guys outproduced the contract from the first week. That's extraordinary. It was extraordinary. It was just me and them. And then very early on, I knew that we had to drug test people because I couldn't put people out on the street who were using drugs or at work. And it's a core element and I want to flash forward a little bit and bring you in a little bit more, Jennifer. Just talk a little bit about what of the, the original values have been maintained and what does workforce development look like in the way that you guys do it now? The mix of training, credentials versus soft skills, that kind of stuff. 
I joined the Dope Fund, my, as you said, this is my second stint. My first stint was in 2000. So it was still very much the early days. And it was, as Harriet said, when they first got that, they outperformed the HPD contract. By the time I got there, they had evolved from doing the HPD contract to doing very much what the men in blue and the Ready, Willing, and Able program are known for today, the supplemental sanitation services. We cover over 115 miles of New York City streets every day doing supplemental sanitation services. And that is the core. That is the beginning of getting people used to the idea of work. And so they get up every morning, they don their bright blue uniforms really, really early, well, much, much earlier than most, most people in New York City get up and they're out there and they become part of the community. It's a paid transitional work assignment and they're doing that five days a week, full days. And then they're returning to the facilities, our transitional housing facilities that we run and they're eating their dinner and they're participating in evening classes to improve their digital literacy, to learn more about conflict resolution, to do career success strategies and resume prep and interview prep. And so the Dope always very early on realized that a core to a strong workforce development program was making sure it was holistic and that it was it was addressing all the different factors in people's lives that had led them to this point, right? We know that homelessness doesn't come only because you don't have somewhere to live, but it's connected with a lot of things that aren't necessarily work working in your life. And so over the years, we've evolved and we've added more skilled training to it. We have advanced vocational training opportunities. And so it's always been this three-legged stool, as we call it, provide the housing, provide the paid transitional employment, and then provide the wraparound support services. And to that three-legged tool over the years, we've also added this advanced training aspect so that people can get jobs that are family sustaining and self-sustaining. And so that's a really important aspect of the program as well. I want to ask you, how does it work to motivate people? In policy circles, we have this big problem that we talk about of the quote, some what people sometimes call men without work. There seems to be a rising number of men who are able-bodied. They're not disabled. They're not seriously mentally ill. They're in their prime work years, but they're not even looking for work. They're just dropping out of the workforce. And it's really, it's there's some debate about why it's happening. It's a bigger debate about what to do about it. Part of the problem just seems to come down to motivation. So what does it look like to work on that particular part of the project? I think that what it's always looked like is it comes down to money. The poorest people are the people most motivated to get money in their pocket. And we pay $15 an hour to clean the streets. Then we indoctrinate them into the concept of if they do this and they also get their skills training, they'll be in a position to really do well, raise their families, and have their dignity at the top of the chart. What I would also add, ever since the start of this, it's always been done in partnership. People have to feel engaged. People have to feel that they are part of the solution. I keep going back to that saying, like, we didn't do a hand out, we did a hand up. It's not only a hand up, it's like a partnership. And so so at the Dope Fund, we have homeless men that fit the profile that you're describing. 
entering our doors every single day in our transitional housing facilities. And some of them come in and they are right off the bat, ready, willing, and able to get engaged in the program and to do what they need to do to build a better life. But some of them come in more skeptical. Some of them come in really, really not interested. And the, the way that you bring buy-in is it's a community. It, it's about building that community, building that trust, making them feel part of it and, and empowered. And in our facilities, it's really important to note that this program was built by people that looked like and came from circumstances exactly like the folks that are coming into the program. Over 70% of the people that work for the DOE Fund in the programs are graduates of the programs themselves, right? And so we really believe you want a diverse staff that has all different skill sets, all different experiences. And we really believe that part of those experiences are people who are credible messengers, people who are role models, people who can say, I have been where you have been. I have walked through those doors. One of the most amazing recent stories is our program director at our original facility, Gates Avenue. He entered He entered the doors of our Gates Avenue facility 14, 15 years ago, coming from a recent incarceration history and homeless. And just two months ago, when our Gates Avenue program director, who had also been a graduate, retired, this guy came and is now leading the program where he graduated from all those years ago. And so it, there's so many stories like that, thousands of them. And so it's being making people part of the solution, getting them engaged in what works, active listening, saying, what do you need? What will motivate you? And then as Harry said, it, it does also involve how much can you earn? And that is a big reason why we are have added and are working to add even more of these skilled and sectoral based training so that people can get out and make wages that they can support themselves and their families and their communities with. My last question has to do with that family point, which is something yeah. that Harriet touched on earlier. What does it mean to promote fatherhood in a practical sense? What Robert Doerr and I agreed on, and I got to tell you, he is extraordinary and cares so much about because after all, how do you break into generational by having a father who's not in prison, who's not homeless, who pays child support? And we've had quite a lot of cases of guys that took their children out of foster care because the mothers were drug addicts or whatever and couldn't really have custody. What we found from the beginning was that Men wanted to be fathers. After all, in their lives, they didn't—they didn't really have a legacy to leave behind, because their lives have been so not successful until they come to us. They saw immediately their children as their legacy. Interestingly enough, they have always really participated in their children's education making sure they went to school, which these men didn't really at all. And the best time of the year for me is when kids graduate from college, because I get all of these photographs of these men that I've known so well, with them with their children graduating college. Yes. Yeah, we're going to have to wrap up in a minute, but Jennifer, I want to give you the opportunity to, to weigh in as well. 
Thank you so much. Yeah, I think everything Harriet's saying is true. It's almost like people want the opportunity if you provide them with the opportunity. And then, you know, to get really kind of granular about it, just like we were talking about as they go through orientation and when they come home from their paid transitional work assignment in the evening, they're partaking in classes. And some of those classes are parenting initiatives and fatherhood initiatives. We've had days over the years where people can bring their children back at the alumni. And we've had programs that we've done in partnership with child support agencies to make sure that people, you know, are treated with respect as they try to navigate complicated systems, but also want to contribute. And so there's the role modeling and the idea of opportunity. And then there's the really tangible classes and payment plans and, and tools and money in their pockets to be able to support their children and take them out to the movies or buy them an ice cream or get more involved. It's such a rich topic we can go on for such yeah. a long time. I'm going to have to bring it to a close. Look, Harriet and Jennifer, first of all, um, thank you so much for being on. But more importantly, you know, thank you for all that you have done and continue to do on your work at the Doe Fund. If any of our listeners, if you want more information on the Doe Fund, please go to www.doe.org. If you want more information about City Journal, you can go on Twitter at City Journal, Instagram at City Journal underscore MI. And as always, if you like what you heard in this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And thanks so much for listening to 10 Blocks. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.